Um, I wear my heart on my sleeve all the time. Um, I don't have room to not do that anymore, to be honest. I spent many a years in corporate life trying to pretend to be something that I'm not, but now I just want to be me and I want to help people and I genuinely care. Something that we did as a family like 15 years ago was it's this whole family tradition that we've got called the Christmas Ninja. So we wrote the Christmas Ninja story, which basically combines all the Christmas traditions, baby Jesus, wise men coming down, Christmas Ninja following them, then has to defend baby Jesus from Santa and his evil ninja elf clan, defeats them, Santa gets banished to the North Pole with the elves, then his penance once a year, they of course have to go and deliver presents to the kids. But then the Christmas Ninja is on this mission to find people that demonstrate the traits that make us awesome, that make humanity awesome. So that's uh, honor, respect, courage, compassion, and self-sacrifice. Kia ora. Welcome to Humans at Work. I'm Jules, your host. Thanks for joining me and our latest guest. And thanks for taking some time in your day to indulge your curiosity about other people and their humanness. If your thirst is unquenched after this, check out humansatwork.org. Now let's begin. Today I'm talking to Vince Warnock. Rather than introduce Vince, I'm going to ask him to introduce himself, tell us where he's sitting, what his <laughs> current job is, and what his favourite thing is to eat. Over oh to you, Vince. Okay, first of all, when you say quirks, I, I feel like you're just talking directly to me then. <laughs> so I'm full of quirks. Okay, where I'm sitting, so everyone, I'm Vince Warnock. I am from, I'm sitting in Wellington, New Zealand, actually in Churton Park, in the home office, trying desperately to keep warm, not succeeding. My job is a mixture of things, actually. Previously, I have had a number of different startups. I've worked in the government sector. That was an accident. Um, and also worked as a chief marketing officer at Signal Insurance. But now I'm getting to do all the stuff that I enjoy, all the stuff that makes me fulfilled. So I'm the host of two podcasts, the host of Chasing the Insights, which is my entrepreneurial podcast, the host of NFT Ninjas. It really is a, a podcast to train people in the Web3 space. But also I run a publishing company and I'm a marketing invisibility coach. So I help a lot of entrepreneurs to position themselves as thought leaders and to be seen. So I'm pretty sure that's it. There's a whole pile of things I've got my finger. I've fingers in so many pies. Basically, I'm just having a lot of fun right now. Favorite thing to eat is probably food. I eat way too much, honestly. <laughs> so I'm I'm half Italian, so I do enjoy really good Italian food. But also deep dish apple pie with ice cream on top, heated up. Oh my goodness, that stuff! I go I go gaga for it. Wow. Do you know what? I wasn't expecting that in terms of apple pie. I don't know what really? I was expecting. Maybe something you know spicy. Yeah, um, but yeah, I, I think the reason is because I, I love spicy foods. Honestly, I'm a huge fan of uh, fan of spicy and savory in general. But I think the reason is uh, to pick a deep dish apple pie is because I normally do have savory foods. I don't generally like I don't eat sugar anymore, so cut that out of my diet. So therefore, the thing I pine for is the thing I can't have, <laughs> which is just basically sugar with some pastry and some apples. I mean, yeah. What's not to like, right? Yeah, exactly. Are you a cinnamon person? Or oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Oh, yeah. Always cinnamon. Yeah. Okay, good. Because we might have had to, you know, reevaluate our relationship. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm, I'm a big that. cinnamon fan. I can't live without cinnamon, actually. I think it's one of those things that, you oh, know, yeah. most everything is enhanced with cinnamon in it. I would agree with that 100%. <laughs> so Churton Park, um, which for those of you who don't know, is a suburb, a kind of distant suburb, I guess, of Wellington. But I see that you've gone to a galaxy far, far away in your office <laughs> design. So talk to us a little bit about your friends behind us. Well, okay. I I used to, when I first kind of got into corporate life, uh, a lot of people told me I need to grow up. 
And a lot of people told me I was not to be childish because I'm a giant nerd. I grew up, I still vividly remember when I saw Star Wars the first time. I was eight years old. Um, I'm sitting in the cinema and that thing had a profound effect on my life. I, mean, I remember at the end, you know, we were back, this is when Star Wars first came out, by the way, so I'm aging myself majorly here, but I remember turning around and every single kid in that cinema, that the credits had finished, the lights were on, there was nothing on the screen and not one of us would get up. We were all holding on to the edge of the chairs, just going, I don't want to leave because if I leave, this is over and I don't want it to be over. That was the effect it had on me. And and I grew up with comic books. Um, comic books were my safety net. I actually grew up in a really abusive household. I grew up in, surrounded by poverty. So for me, if I could get my hands on a comic book, I would read about these people who basically had all the same problems I did. You know, like in a lot of cases, they were in terrible relationships or they were trying to, you know, get money or trying to, you know, succeed at school. I'm thinking Spider-Man here. Um, constantly failing at it. But at the same time, they had to save the world. And for me, that kind of made my problems seem a lot less. So it was a way of kind of putting some perspective on it. And also I felt safe with these people. So that was my childhood. And then I got to corporate life and everyone's like, oh, you can't be in the comic books. That's for kids. You can't be in a Star Wars. Come on, what, what are you? You've got to grow up now. You've got, to, you've got to be an adult. You know, you've got to do adult things. And for years, I kind of denied who I was. I, I tried to be someone that wasn't me. And then at one point, I just got tired of it and just accepted the fact that I'm a giant nerd and I should just enjoy the things I enjoy. I'm a really passionate person. I'm passionate about Star Wars. Passionate. That's why all the all the different stuff behind me, even the uh, Boba Fett helmet. I've I've done cosplay many a times at Armageddon, uh, which is like our Comic Con, and you know, and these characters. And this is, by the way, it's only a small portion of my Star Wars memorabilia. Like the rest of it's in storage because my wife said you're not putting that in the living room no <laughs> like you can put it in your office i don't care but it's not going in the main areas of the house so i'm like oh damn it so a lot of it's in storage but yeah my background is star wars it's comic books and it's a lot of whiskey <laughs> <laughs> although those whiskey bottles get less and less every day for some strange reason i don't know why <laughs> yeah. surprising surprising yeah. Um, so if you had to pick a character as your favorite character although i'm not an ultra nerd but i do like a bit of star wars but who yep. would you be uh, well, when I was a kid, I was Luke Skywalker for many years. Um, I, But although weirdly, I also, my first ever girlfriend was uh, Princess Leia. She just wasn't real and didn't know about it. Uh, but she was just this amazing, powerful woman who didn't need rescuing, didn't need a man. Like everything about her was just exactly what women should be portrayed like on, on screen. I thought it was amazing, especially having five sisters. I was like... In fact, all of my sisters, I said, you've got to watch Star Wars. Stop watching the Disney princess crap. Go and see this. This this is real woman. This is amazing. They didn't buy into it, but anyway. But yeah, I was, I was Luke Skywalker for years. Then I kind of graduated to Han Solo. But for me, it was always the thought of flying an X-Wing. Um, so I'm going to pick a random character here. I'm going to pick Wedge Antilles. He is a character that was in all of the original trilogy as a background character. He led Rogue Squadron. Uh, and in the Expanded Universe books, he just, you know, he led all these raids on Empire, uh, on the Empire kind of bases and things like that as well. And I, I just love that aspect of it. So um, you mentioned your wife. Who else makes up your family? Ah, well, yes. So my wife, Leanne, we've actually been married 27 years now. So I know we were thinking about it the other day, it was like, wow, weirdly, it feels like we've been married forever. And at the same time, like just a year. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. But we also have two kids who have grown up now. Uh, my daughter, Oriana, she is 25 now. And my son, Jarvis, is still with us here at home. He's 19. He's studying software engineering at uh, Vic Uni. So um, and doing very, very well there too. Any pets? Yes, Cole, our cat. He is the most gorgeous. Like, honestly, anyone who tells me that cats don't have a personality and they don't care, 
is basically they've just never seen a cat before because this cat is I, I in fact I there's a story I share quite a bit because I'm actually creating an NFT series based around this because I suck at self-care. I'm really bad at it, right? I work from home, like this is my business. I'm constantly online and things. And with ADHD and, and the the hyper alert kind of part of that as well, the hyper focus part, there'll be days where I suddenly at three o'clock in the afternoon, I get up and I'm like, why am I so dizzy? Why am I, why do I feel so bad? And then I realize I've been going since 3 a.m. I haven't taken a break, haven't had any food, any water, haven't gone to the bathroom. It's not healthy. So I'm trying to get better at that. But one morning I remember waking up and I was having one of those days that we all have. One of those days where I'm like, I can't face the day. I'm overwhelmed. Um, I'm just feeling terrible. My mental health was suffering big time that morning. And I kind of sat in front of the computer and realized, can't do this. Nope. I have to go and sit on the couch in the lounge. Everyone else is still asleep. And Cole, our cat, came up and he kind of stood next to me, like he's standing next to me on the chair. And then he comes out and he tries to push me over. And I'm like, what are you doing? I realized he's trying to make me lie down. I thought, oh, he just wants to lie down on me so he can get warm, you know. But I laid down on the couch, put a little pillow under my head, laid down on the couch. And he stretched right out and put his head underneath my chin and his paws kind of on either side and just started purring. And I could feel every stress start to melt away i could feel everything start to get a bit more perspective and and then the two of us just fell asleep and i honestly slept for about another two hours which is very rare for me i've got a weird condition i hardly sleep um but he knew he knew that i was having a rough day and he knew i just needed some help so uh yeah anyone anyone who speaks bad about cats come at me um, i'll prove he, you wrong he just yeah. walked behind you in the screen yeah, yeah. As well he's like i you know i want to appear i mean oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. if you have a pet like a cat or a dog or whatever and you interact with it and stroke it and all of that sort of stuff then yep. you'll live 10 years younger which yeah, is yeah. 10 10 years longer which is good as well as probably feel 10 years younger actually exactly exactly no i just i love it i i love animals in general i'm always amazed by animals i still remember okay weird tangential story here but you get used to this. I'm full of stories. We, we were a lot younger. Our daughter was really young. We took her up to Napier and they had the SeaWorld thing. I can't remember what it was called up there, but the Napier Sea Park thing. And they had the dolphins there. And I remember standing there and I'm looking at these dolphins in the water just going, holy crap, these things are beautiful. Like they're just incredible creatures. And the guy, the, the trainer there, he was telling us, oh yes. And you know, watch this. And he leans over and they come up and they go on their tail and they give him a kiss. And he goes, yes, you know, we performed this bond over many years with them and it takes a while for them to trust and all this kind of thing. And while he's while he's giving this big spiel there about how he's so amazing because these dolphins want to kiss him, I just look over the edge. I look at one of these dolphins. I'm like, you are so freaking cool. And next thing you know, it comes up on its back tail and gave me a kiss. I'm telling you now, I've never forgotten that. It was, I, I could not stop smiling for about a month. The fact that a, weirdly that a dolphin gave me a kiss, it just felt so cool. <laughs> That's adorable. I mean, they do say, don't they, also that dolphins have been known to kind of rescue people or comfort yeah. people when they're, you know, shipwrecked. Yeah. I don't know, whatever, you know, eating I in think the I think the thing with the dolphin is as well, it just, I mean, it looked at me and said, you're definitely non-threatening. Like, seriously, you're going gaga up there. Um, but I think they just feel your emotion. And I think this is the thing with animals as well. When animals know you respect them, when they know that you love them, when they know that you just, you know, in awe of them. Uh, man, actually, if you ever get the chance, do the cheetah exhibit. Uh, although I think they've closed it down now at Wellington Zoo. You used to go there and be able to pet these cheetahs. It is the most amazing thing ever. We were sitting there, they said, don't touch the head because the um, people that work there can touch the head, but it takes a lot for them to trust you. But you're sitting there and I'm patting this cheetah and you've got this weird mix of emotion. Like part of you is going, wow, I'm so in awe because they purr really loudly, like louder than any animal you've ever come across. And you're sitting there patting them going, 
this is so freaking amazing and then you've got this this awe of them as well you like this you just sit there going oh it's just like a cat i want to hug it you know and then the other part of you is going and it could tear my face off like this is crazy like you're just freaking out but then while we're doing it, I took my son there for our com- combined birthday party and two of us are sitting there patting it. And then one of them just turned around. He went right up, put his hand his head underneath our hands and got us to pat his head. And the, the guy that worked there was just going, go for it, go for it. Just keep patting, be very, very gentle and all this. And I'm like, oh, I almost cried. I was so overwhelmed by just the whole experience itself. It was amazing. I've done that actually. That's uh, at yeah. Wellington Zoo with those yeah. two creatures. And I had the same kind of mix of emotions of, kind of wonderment you know especially when I've watched them on screens all my life and I have actually seen them on safari in Africa when I was a child but actually being there and touching them and feeling the life force you know yeah um, Yeah. that kind of power that they have is a really humbling experience but you're still going oh my god you're so cute yeah, um, yeah, but in yeah. fact, you know that then that you know, cute is not how you would describe a shit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. the thing. It's that weird thing of going, you're cute, but you're awesome, but you're deadly, yeah. ah, but you're cute. Kind of, kind of describes my wife really. Cute but deadly but awesome. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Well, I was going to ask if somebody close to you was to use three words to describe you, what words would they use? <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. Talkative, definitely. Caring would definitely be there as well and genuine. I wear my heart on my sleeve all the time. I don't have room to not do that anymore, to be honest. I spent many years in corporate life trying to pretend to be something that I'm not, but now I just want to be me and I want to help people and I genuinely care. Something that we did as a family like 15 years ago was we were trying to, it's this whole family tradition that we've got called the Christmas Ninja. And we tried to tell my son about Santa Claus and he just looked at us and went, nah, <laughs> he was four. And he said, ah, oh, that's a stretch dad. And I went, okay, he's never going to fall for this. So we told him the truth and said, look, Santa's not real. It's just something that parents and Coca-Cola make up so that kids behave. Um, he turned around and said, look, if you're going to make up stories, this is a four-year-old mind. He said, if you're going to make up stories, make them interesting and put ninjas in them. And we just thought, best thing that ever come out of a four-year-old's mouth and then the other thing was i realized how much i really did not like the whole concept of telling kids behave and you'll get rewarded um and in, in fact as a society we kind of do this as well we we come say to people hey if you do as you do as you're told essentially if you behave yourself if you can do what your parents your teachers your employers your leaders tell you you will get rewarded for that and i thought I want so much more for my kids, so much more for us as well. So we wrote the Christmas Ninja story, which basically combines all the Christmas traditions, baby Jesus, wise men coming down, Christmas Ninja following them, then has to defend baby Jesus from Santa and his evil ninja elf clan, defeats them, Santa gets banished to the North Pole with the elves, then as penance once a year, they of course have to go and deliver presents to the kids. But then the Christmas Ninja is on this mission to find people that demonstrate the traits that make us awesome, that make humanity awesome. So that's uh, honor, respect, courage, compassion, and self-sacrifice. So that was the story, right? And then when this ninja finds these people, they they deem them worthy, bestow upon them a gift, and they become a ninja themselves. But it started our family tradition. And we every year we had to pick a person each that we deem worthy of those traits for whatever reason. And then we get them a gift. And at Christmas time, we're allowed to open one of our gifts each. And we have to jump in the car and go and deliver this anonymous present from the Christmas ninja. And it's got the full story in there and everything. And we're going to do that without getting seen. And we have so much fun, honestly. It has just been, it's one of the, the highlights of our Christmas traditions, that's for sure. But the other thing I realized over the last 15 years is it did something really quite profound in all of us. And that was it actually trained us to see people different. Mm. Uh, because when you're constantly and consistently looking for the best in other people, 
when you're telling your brain, I want to see what makes people great so that I can reward that, I can recognize it and reward it, that actually kind of reprograms your whole reticular activating system. So basically, you've got this kind of front part of your brain that says, hey, there's all this information bombarding me at every single minute of the day, like every five cents. You know, when you're walking down the street, you see every color, every you know, car, every person, every building, every tree, everything, you know, all this information coming in your eyeballs. And that's just one of your senses. So your brain's got to make sense of all that and go, which of this information is useful for my survival or my thriving, you know? So, but when you go to your brain and you say, hey, I want to see the good parts of people. I want to see the good in others. Your brain goes, well, that's now relevant information for me. So therefore I will pass that information through the reticular activating system into your, you know, your prefrontal cortex. So all of a sudden we realized that we were seeing the potential and the good in everyone, not just the people that we like, not just the people we surround ourselves with, sometimes the people that irritate us, the people we disagree with, or the people that we just like, but when you're training your brain to see the good in others, you start to see it in them as well. And when you realize that, you kind of just have to accept that and go, well, I'm just going to have to wear my heart on my sleeve. I'm just going to have to believe the best in others and do what I can to try and impact them. So so that's kind of my long-winded way of saying, you know, authentic and caring and things. But um, I think it outworks through a lot of the work that I do as well. Yeah, they definitely resonate for me. Um, some people may or may not know that we used to work together years and yeah. years ago in the BC era, the before children era for me at least, uh, not for <laughs> you, I know. And I was thinking this morning about how would I describe you from, I mean, we know each other now, but how would I describe you from when we worked together? Yeah. Um, and I definitely had kind first, um, first off. Um, to whoever, even if they were being a little bit bolshy or disrespectful, you know, to you. Oh, we have many stories, yes. Uh, yeah, we, <laughs> yeah. we have many, many stories. Yeah. Can do, you yeah. know. I don't think I've ever heard you say no to somebody who had a genuine request. That's not the same as saying no to somebody who had an okay idea, but you had a better idea. But I yeah. can remember you going in at the weekend to do something that wasn't your job so yeah. that on a Monday everybody else in, in the organisation could work. So yeah. that kind of can do. And certainly from all of the things, all of your side hustles plus your main hustles, yeah. you've still got that. I can do that. I can do that. And the third thing was courageous. You have never shied away from anything, you know. And I know everybody has challenges in their life, but, you know, hard childhood, challenges throughout your career. But if I think about everything that you have done, you've never gone, oh, that's a bit scary. I don't think I'll do that. You know, you've yeah. just kind of gone for it. And some things work out and some things don't, but you kind of learn from it. So those yeah. are my kind of my three words for you when I was oh, thinking about you. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to make me cry, Jules. Um, no, look, I, yeah, that's, that means a lot. And one of the things that I realized early on, particularly in marriage and when we had our kids for the first time, is that's a lot of pressure for me. You know, when I look at that, I'm like, I'm, I'm bringing kids into this world. I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, seriously, I'm, I'm a kid myself. I still am. I'm like, I'm trying to raise kids. This is crazy. But the thing that I realized is I want to create an environment for, for Leanne and the kids where they feel like they can thrive. They feel like that they can achieve anything that they want to achieve. You know, um, it was really important to me when the kids were growing up. Two things were really important, actually. One was that they don't judge people based on you know their actions or, ju or judge on their perceptions, but they actually try and look behind that and find out what's going on in other people's lives because you have no idea most of the time. You know, we just judge people very quickly, but we have no idea the struggles that they go through and things. So if you understand that, it really does help you to relate to people. 
But the other thing was never be reliant on on an income from someone, you know, never being reliant on somebody else for your own success, like create your own wealth, create your own success. So to do that, to create that kind of environment for them, you can't just say, hey, go out and start your own company or, hey, take a giant risk over here. You actually have to do it yourself. You've got to show them that this can be done and that you can fail and bounce back, that you can make mistakes and recover from that, that you can try something really risky and succeed. So it doesn't mean I don't feel the fear. Oh my goodness, petrified all the time. <laughs> but, but the key thing is if you've got the right motivation, you can just do it anyway. I always get really annoyed at, at Nike with that whole just do it. I'm like, damn it, how'd they get to trademark that? That is just That should be just a universal saying for everybody, just do it. Because it doesn't matter how scared you are, what's on the other side of that is either success or learning. It's not really anything that's catastrophic. So yeah. Yeah, feel the fear, but do it anyway, right? That's the um, one, yep. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that's very resonated, resonating with me a lot around the humans at work kind of concept really is that yeah. until you actually sit down with different people and ask about who they are behind the scenes, behind the professional persona, you have yeah. no idea. And yeah. if you listen to people's stories, 100% of the time, <clears throat> you will find something interesting that brings you to a common a common area, even if you have a whole lot of um, differing views around a whole lot of things, which most people do, because we're all very opinionated. Um, but there'll always be something that you can go, oh, yeah, I understand that. Like, I can put myself in your shoes and I can see how you would have felt or why you've done that. But I, I agree with you. It's really important for kids and, and peers around you to see you doing things that really embody what you're trying to tell them as well. You know, I have this problem with, you know, do what I say, not what I do. And kids are the best reflection of that, right? You know, when I say, oh, you know, be respectful, don't shout at your, you know, your brother or your sister or whatever. Um, occasionally, my kids will say, you shouted at me this morning <laughs> and you go, if you're in a, you're in that reflective moment, you actually have to own it. And so what I try and do is say, you're absolutely right. There's reasons for why I did it, but do you know what? If that made you feel bad, it was absolutely the wrong thing to do. And I'm going to try not to do it next time, which is a really hard thing to do when you're running out the door with, you know, one shoe on and the bus coming down the road, but it's, it's important. Those little things are important for kids. Actually apologizing to kids is really important as well. I, I love that aspect of what you did there because a lot of parents really shy away from it. They feel like if they you know, apologize, they're admitting failure and their kids might respect them. Actually, your kids respect you a lot more. I still remember turning around to my kids one day and saying, actually, the way I behaved before, I was really stressed. Uh, I was really anxious about something that was going on at work. Um, I shouldn't have reacted that way. I didn't need to take that out on you guys. They were like, Dad, it wasn't that big a deal. And I said, well, it was to me because that's not me. And just being able to have an open conversation with them. That whole... Um, seeing behind what people do and trying to understand other people is absolutely critical. And I think we need more of that, so much more of that in the world right now, because there's so much divide and so much, you know, there's politics and, and views on vaccination, all sorts of things going around in the world. And as a result, people, they don't talk to each other anymore. They just form an opinion. Um, and for me, I had the fortune slash misfortune, I guess, of learning this the hard way. I remember when I, like, as I said, I grew up in an abusive household. And when, you know, for me, up until the age of 10, my safe place was at school. That was a place where I felt I could let my guard down. I could just learn. I, I love learning. I, I love knowledge. But I could just be myself around my friends, you know, who, by the way, where I grew up, most of them were in abusive households as well. You know, this is the underbelly of New Zealand. But when I got to age 11, I discovered something else. I went to intermediate and I had a bully. 
And this is a guy who's made my life hell for two years. And now I had a bully at home and I had a bully at school. I had no safe space for this. So my life was horrible, you know, for two years. I, I honestly, it's going to sound so lame, but I, every day I just kept dreaming that uh, aliens would come down and pick me up and say, turns out you're not from this planet. Turns out there's a whole galaxy that you need to save. You're the chosen one. Come and do this. Um, like that was, you know, what I kept dreaming about because I just wanted out of the situation. And then I found the good news when we we're at the end of the last year of intermediate, he went to a different college from me. I went, yes, this is awesome. So I went to Mana. He went to, I think, Porirua College. And I got to college and I decided I was sick of being a victim. So I was going to throw myself into learning how to defend myself. So threw myself into martial arts, trained every single day, did a mixture of styles from Thai to traditional boxing to Chinese and things. Enough that I could probably defend myself. Not enough to be like Bruce Lee, but enough to be able to defend myself. But then this amazing thing happened. And when I was at uh, seventh form, so 17, he got transferred to our school. And I'm looking, I'm going, oh man, I've seen enough 80s movies to know how this plays out. Like the underdog finally comes out on top. This is going to be glorious. It's going to feel incredible. He walked past me one day and I called out his name and yelled some expletives. And he turns around, did one normally does, kind of straps over and took a swing at me. And I went, ha nope. Took another swing at me, nope. And I'm like, oh man, this is going to be so sweet. Took another swing at me and then bam, I laid him out. And he's on the ground, laying there, he was unconscious. And I felt terrible. And I'm like, this is not how I'm supposed to feel. I was supposed to feel like the victor here. Like, I'm, what, why do I feel so bad? Next thing you know, I'm in the principal's office because guess what? That's what happens when you fight. And by the way, I'm not a violent person at all. This is really out of character for me at all. But um, I remember being in the principal's office and he was talking with me, he pulled me aside and he said, look, first of all, do you know why he got transferred to the school? And I'm a 17-year-old trying to be cool. So I'm like, I don't care. He goes, well, you should care. I went, oh. And he goes, look, and he explained the situation that this boy had lived in. He said this kid had grown up in abuse. His father was incredibly abusive towards him, his sister and his mother through their entire childhood to the point where the father beat the mother so badly in front of the two kids that she actually lost her life and passed away. Now, rightfully so, he's gone to jail for, for manslaughter and the kids have been put in with their auntie and uncle, which is why they now come to my school. And I just stood there looking at the principal and said, well, I didn't know that. And he goes, no, I wouldn't have expected you to know that. He said, but of all the people that could possibly have understood what he had gone through, I thought you might've been the one. And I had this horrible feeling in the pit of my stomach. I realized I had no idea what this guy's life was like. I'd never even made an attempt to know what his life was like. But the other thing is I realized I was, I wasn't the hero of this story. I was the villain of the story. I had the I was the one that had the opportunity to at least try to reach out to him. It may not have succeeded, but it could have. And I didn't. Instead, I chose to do exactly what he had grown up with and, and just reenact basically what he'd been surrounded with his whole life. So that was a, a massive eye-opener for me. Also made me realize that 80s movies lied to us. Don't ever trust them. They're all lies. Just every single one of them. <laughs> like, the bully say, never went. Uh, the never karate comes kid, the ending with the karate kid with the bird thing and everything. Oh, no. thing, you know, yep. uh, you look back at those films now, you know, we try yeah. and get um, some of our kids to watch them, the teenagers to watch them, and they just cringe. Yeah. Because these days. Yep. Uh, yeah, we're going, this is the hero. And they're going, he's actually a bit of a jerk. And yeah, you're like, that's right. Yeah, he really is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it was, it was a number a, on us. Yeah, it did, eh? it did. But it was a, a weird, and it was quite a hard way to learn that lesson, but it was an important lesson to learn. And 
Uh, no, I never, you know, it didn't suddenly trigger, you know, me doing everything right from that moment onwards, but onwards, but it made me realize that I really do need to make an effort to understand why people behave the way that they do. And that's honestly, that's the easiest way to learn to be kind to others is try and put yourself in their shoes for a moment. If you can understand their world, even for a little bit, even if you disagree with them, it's fine. Just understand where they're coming from, understand their insecurities, their pains, their triggers, their scars, all these different things. Um, it will just make the world a better place. It is really important. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, if I put that in a work context and I flip it around, I think yeah. there's something about responsibility as a leader, definitely, but, but certainly as a participant in the work environment, not to to try not to bring all of that stuff to the work environment either, right? Because yeah. Yeah. the people around you don't know what's going on in your life, but they certainly don't ex expect or deserve to be a scapegoat for yeah what's going on in your life and so you know we've we all know people who've had you know bullies in the office or or people who are disrespectful to them or you know don't show value or whatever and you try always to say well maybe some stuff's going on behind the scenes in their life but once you get out of school once you're an adult yeah there's something about going actually my home life is pretty crap and I'm feeling pretty bad about all of this yeah. but uh, if work is my safe space, I don't want to spoil that by bringing all of that into the work environment. So it's a really interesting kind of shift. Yeah. But also there's a fine line, right? Because you want to be yourself at work. You yeah. don't want to hide over all, you know, cover all the cracks. You don't want to say everything's amazing when actually you're close to breaking point. Yeah. It's how that, you translate that into actions to others, I think. Yeah. I think that's the other thing to remember too is, we can do our best. Everyone can do their best to separate their work from their home life, right? Or their work from stuff that's causing them anxiety over here. But at some point, you're going to face a trigger at work. You're going to face something that, you know, like uh, for me, one of the things I, I really can't stand is people talking down to others. Um, I grew up in that environment. I was surrounded by people undervaluing who you were. You know, I wasn't, you know, I was a target as a child. I wasn't really a child. So I don't want to be surrounded by people that talk down to others. So I find I accidentally react to those situations quite a lot. Um, like particularly if another employee is being bullied or being spoken down to or rudely to, I tend to realize I'm standing there and now my mouth is talking and I have no idea. My brain's going, I don't know the words coming out. And I'm like, uh oh, I might be in trouble right now. Um, <laughs> but the the other thing too is... Um, you sometimes it's like particularly if you've got your own startup so this is something we used to do um with common ledger uh, which was one of my previous companies um we realized that you can't fully separate the two right you can do your best but you can't fully separate but we also realized that we were in a high pressure environment we were in a high growth tech startup uh, we knew that it was going to be a lot of stress a lot of anxiety and things like that and we knew that that was going to bring up some you know triggers and some things from our own pasts so one of the things we implemented was a concept called How Was Your Heart? Uh, it was based on an Indonesian word, which I can never remember what the Indonesian word was, um, but it was a daily check-in. I have to say that slowly because every time I talk to Americans, they think I'm talking about poultry, but check-in, like checking in with each other. So we do this thing daily and you could do it remotely as well. But the idea was you could say, um, I am feeling, or you, you check in, you say, hi, I'm Vince. And everyone goes, hi, Vince, which is really cheesy, but trust me, it's important. And then you go, today I am feeling, and you could use any of these terms. You could say, I'm mad, I'm glad, I'm sad, or I'm afraid, right? They were the four. And you could choose not to use any of them. You could say, actually, I, I don't want to check in. Uh, or you could use one, you could use all four. It depends, you know, whatever you're feeling. But it gave you the chance to talk about your life. So you could say, I'm feeling sad today because... 
um, I just got some really bad news last night or I'm feeling like a good example of this actually was one of our, our co-founders and he was a highly volatile person at the best of times. Um, but he came, he checked in one morning and said, look, I'm, I'm really sad because I found out last night that my mum is dying of cancer and she doesn't, it's very aggressive and she doesn't have long. Now, knowing that as his co-founders, knowing that as the rest of the team, doesn't mean that we could, you know, we're not going to pander to that all day, but it meant we could understand the context of where he's coming from. We could understand that, hey, maybe if, you know, there's a high stress situation, maybe he's going to react poorly to that. So let's keep that in mind. So if he does react, actually, we can show him some some grace, you know. Um, and then the other thing we always did at the end of that is uh, you, you check in with those various terms. But one thing you had to do was you had to say, and I am thankful for. And you had to declare something you're thankful for. And it didn't have to be anything to do with work. This was the weird thing. This check-in was more about your own personal life than work life. But it gave you that opportunity to contextualize the day. And we discovered too, by doing I'm thankful for, um, early on when we did it, everyone was coming up for really random things. Like, I'm thankful for pens because I get to write. Or I'm thankful for the sun because it means I don't freeze. Or <laughs> water so I don't dehydrate. Um, but it started to get really quite powerful from people um, actually looking at what they are grateful for in life and that reframes your day when you're starting the day looking at the positive and you're starting the day going actually i'm really grateful for these things so yeah highly encourage and particularly startups it's a little harder to do in the corporate environment we used to do it with uh one of my high performing teams certainly um but in the larger context in a corporate it's a little bit difficult and you know as we know large corporates don't necessarily like the fluffy stuff but they're like hey sometimes it works that's the kind of thing um, certainly I employed and I think a lot of others did where during the pandemic when uh, everybody was working from home and everything was on screens uh, and, you you know, generally what you did if you had a team in that or you were part of a team is you had at least a daily stand up or a daily catch up or whatever, which was not about work. Yep. It was actually about how is your life going? Um, and people could say, you know, the kids have gone crazy. The dog's been barking. I have to go to the supermarket today, which is a, you know, a two hour process with gloves and masks and hand sanitizer and whatever. Yeah. So uh, that's my context for the day. So if I don't respond to the email within the first five minutes, it might be because I'm battling with a two hour line at the supermarket or because actually I've just had to get myself out the house. Yeah. Um, because I'm feeling and I feel like, you know, there were a lot of things obviously negative about um, being in lockdown and being away from people and having that interaction kind of um, that human human interaction changed. But yeah. there were some things that that were allowed to flow much more. And I, and I think that's one of those ones where you could say you can see the mess in the background because this happened, you know, and you couldn't hide it because kids <laughs> walk, the, do the dog, the cat, you know. Yeah. You're sitting at the dinner table with with um, family members doing homework or shouting or whatever it was. So you had to give a little bit more of that that context. Yeah. Um, oh and man, I I'm so used to being on a Zoom call uh, with one of my team members even now because all you know most of my team members have got you know kids and everything. So I used to being on a Zoom call and suddenly you see them mute themselves and then you can see them mouthing the shouting words in the background because they're going Shh, I'm trying to tell the kids to get out of the room. They're on a call. Um, yeah, I. Lockdown's been a very interesting thing for me uh, because in the whole pandemic thing, because in reality, it didn't terribly change much. You know, I, you know, I had left Cigna pre-COVID um, and I work from home. That's kind of what I do. The challenge, though, was the, the, the mental side of that, because I'm a high extrovert. I need to be around people. And I didn't even realize I thought, hey, I work from home. So therefore, you know, that's my routine. But what I didn't realize is I often would actually just drive into town, go and sit at a cafe 
and just work away in a cafe to be surrounded by people. And I thought that was me being alone, but in actual fact, it was me desperately needing to be around others. So my my wife thought it was hilarious when um, we came out of lockdown, we we could go back to the gym. And I, like honestly, I was like the day we got the news that we could go back to the gym, I was like refreshing, refreshing the page, messaging the owner of the gym going, come on, when are the classes going to be on there? I need to get there, I need to get there. And she goes, yeah, yeah, fine, calm down, Vince. So we finally got to the gym and Leanne was cracking up laughing. I was like, what? She's a high introvert. And I said, what? She goes, do you realize what you're doing? And I said, what? I'm waiting to go to the gym. She goes, yeah, we were standing outside the door. She said, I was like a puppy. I was bouncing up and down going, people, people. Oh, oh. every time someone came past me, like, hi, hi. I was just so excited to be around others. And I, I had no idea the actual emotional and mental toll that not being able to be around others, other, other than my family, obviously, um, had actually had on me. So I, I just find it was been a really interesting thing to see people's reaction to it. I also think, in all honesty, I think the lockdown or actually the pandemic thing itself has actually been a bit of a blessing to the world. And I know that comes, a lot of people would kind of argue with me on that one, but the reality is I think it's made people kind of reevaluate what's important to them because oftentimes like a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck in corporate roles. And the reason they do is because it's secure. You know, you've got a secure job that pays you a salary. You don't have to take any risks and being an entrepreneur is scary. It really is. But the reality is when pandemic hit, people realized that those secure jobs that we thought we had not actually that secure. A lot of companies laid off a lot of staff, even during lockdowns, which I thought was really, really dodgy. But anyway, um, but a lot of people, that security blanket just got pulled out from under them. So it forced them to go, what's important to me? Is it important to have that security or is it important that I can actually control my own destiny on this? So I think that's been a, a hidden blessing from the whole thing. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think it did force, if I think about me personally, you know, it forced me to acknowledge the things that I actually like, because I actually liked a lot of the lockdown. You know, I work from home a lot. I'm perfectly comfortable on video yeah. or in my own head. Or, you know, I quite like the old fashioned phone calls with no video. Oh, that's just crazy. <laughs> I know we've had that conversation yeah. before on the phone. Something about not having your face plastered there, you know. And I think what it did for me is it, it allowed me to go, actually, I really like that. So why should I apologize for that? And how can I recreate my life for my work life in particular, where there's more of that and less of the stuff that I don't like sitting in a pod in a big office with a whole yeah. lot of people around me that I don't need to engage with for my work. Yeah. Don't necessarily need to engage with from a interpersonal perspective or to get friends or, or what have you. But I did miss sitting in a cafe with ambient noise around me and seeing other people and that people watching aspect. I know. That's, I love it. You know, absolutely. I'm hundred percent. That was one of the first things I wanted to do was yeah. in a cafe, you know, and I can yeah. make tea and scones at home, yeah. but going out to a cafe and having tea and scones and being able to see people interact. Oh yeah. Um, and hear them chatting was sort of like solace, you know, yeah. to my soul, if you like. I just, I, my, my son made a really interesting observation, like, um, because, you know, during, if you're in New Zealand, obviously during lockdown, we got our one walk a day that you're allowed to go on, you know, and you'd walk along and you know, you'd see a couple coming towards you, but they're on the other side of the road, you know, and all this, and we'd interact with them, say hi and all that kind of thing. But my son made an observation because he thought it was hilarious that we would be walking along the three of us. And every time we came across another person, you know, Leanne would say hi, and he would say hi, but I'd be there jumping up and down going hi and waving at them and I was always first to to yell hi and wave at other people then he realized that everyone that we came across usually if there was a couple 
they were nine times out of 10, probably 9.9 times out of 10, they were a mix of an introvert and an extrovert. And you could tell because the introvert, you know, they're always civil and they're always like, oh, yep, hi, kind of thing. But there's always one there that's desperately looking at you going, make eye contact, make eye contact. I need to see another human being. Please, the love of all that is good, say hi to me. Oh, it's just, it was hilarious. And he made the observation, I'm going, that's so true. And he goes, yeah, but dad, you're that extrovert. <laughs> you're the one bouncing up and down. Yeah, nobody would ever know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so just going on about your going into your career, what was your first ever job? First ever job before I trained, so just straight out of school, was actually rubbish collection. So I worked at a commercial rubbish company. So I did a mixture of you know, business related rubbish. So you drive around. I was the offsider that used to drive in the truck and we'd like winch the big wheelie bins up into the truck and all that kind of thing. And then, then I got the dream job. It was, I was the guy running alongside the truck, throwing the rubbish bags up and over. And I can tell you now that was actually one of the most fun jobs I've ever had. It was, I got so fit. I've never been that fit ever again, <laughs> but it was amazing. So that, that was a lot of fun. Then I, then I studied, I went to CIT and studied electronics engineering, got bored very quickly with that. So changed from electronics engineering to electronics, computer and software engineering. And then my first job out of that was actually working at a little family run business called Confirm Scientific. They used to make plant growth chambers, like incubators for plants and things, and sell those around the world. Like these are really, you know, really advanced little systems. And I used to work, I used to run the the electronics department basically. You know, I worked with a, a really smart guy who him and I used to design the stuff and then I'd build it and put it together as a prototype, test it. When it worked, we we're like, right, we'll put that into manufacturing. So I literally worked in a lab with a lab coat, which was hilarious because back then I actually had hair. I had really long hair going down my back and a long goatee in this lab coat. I looked like a scientific Jesus. I don't really know how to describe it. But then moved from there and just kind of transitioned. I like One of the things I realized was I thought technology was the thing I was super passionate about. And I am. I love technology. But the more I got into the working life, I realized people were way more important to me. Um, so when I left there, I took a management role um, at FPOS New Zealand uh, back when there were only a few staff there before it sold to ANZ, I think, for about, we had about 350 employees at one time. And when I started there, we were just a handful of us. But I more and more realized that the people was the side of it I loved. And then ended up working in uh, radio. I worked at More FM as an on-air announcer for a number of years. That was my dream job. Like ever since I was seven, I think I built my first crystal radio set when I was seven without even a schematic. So I was super impressed with that, by the way. Anyone who knows electronics knows that that's pretty damn impressive. So just based on that, and I could only get one station though. That was pretty poor design. But I used to listen to these DJs and these on-air announcers and I'm going, wait a minute, there's a job out there that pays you to play music to hang out with cool people and to interact with the public. I mean, hello, this is obviously the dream job. What I didn't realize is the pay was definitely not dream. So that job didn't last, you know, last me a few years working there and, and having a day job in the in normal time as well. But then I had to give it up because a lot of the stuff I was doing, moving into marketing, moving into digital, that sort of overtook my life. And I realized I could make a lot more money in that. So it's so now been in marketing about 20 plus years and kind of gone in and out of, both entrepreneurship and, you know, like startups and then back into corporate and accidentally in government where we met <laughs> so, and all those kind of things in between as well. It's been, it's been a crazy journey. I have absolutely no regrets for it. There's been a lot of jobs where I probably should have left earlier than I did because I believe everyone has a certain amount of time somewhere. And sometimes I let that go a lot longer than I probably should have. But in reality, every job I've had has taught me something new, has added some new skill or some new experience that 
I can take to do what I do now. So, so I've absolutely enjoyed my career. If I think about what you do now, so you, you know, you get to talk on podcasts uh, and video using a big mic, probably similar to what you would have used when you were doing radio announcing. Oh, yeah, definitely. A whole range of different people and people listen to you, right? So you've kind of come full circle. Yeah. Yeah, I've kind of combined all the different things now. Now now that I'm doing a lot of work in Web3, that's combining, obviously, a lot of the technology aspect of it as well. So, yeah, I'm just combining all the different learnings, man. It's awesome. And the, the good thing is, though, I am at the point where, because if I look at last year, I thought I knew where I was going with my business last year. And I was like, I'm very, very clear on this. I was running a group program, like an accelerator program for businesses, doing a lot of one-to-one coaching with a lot of high-profile entrepreneurs around the world. I think very few clients ever in New Zealand for some reason. And then, and obviously I had the podcast and things as well. But uh, the other thing I was doing is a lot of the clients, the one-to-one clients that I had, I was helping them to publish their books and to become authors and the more i got into that they got i got to the end of last year and thought i want a bit of a change i don't know what i want to do but i look back on the year and thought what were the things that lit me up like what were the things that really made me happy and there were two things one of them was a lot of the technology stuff i was studying because it just was fascinating but the other one was every single time one of my clients was holding up that book that they just get published and they had that cheesy grin on their face and they're like that look of oh my goodness i did it i accomplished this that was such a fulfilling feeling. And I'm like, I want more of that. So this year I've totally changed things up. So every year I'm trying to keep open to what other opportunities are there? What are the areas I can enter into? What are the other ways that I can add value to people? So it's been an absolute blast. And you're a bit of an ideas factory. I know that <laughs> when we work together and occasionally I would say, great idea, but we just can't do it. You know, we're yeah. in government or, you know, we haven't got the time, we haven't got the money. Do you think that that is something that really gives you the oomph in terms of being an entrepreneur and running your own business? Because there has yeah. to be something, doesn't there, that takes people from full-time sort of safe, secure employment, working for a corporate or yeah. for whoever, working for somebody else to going into working for themselves. And a lot of people, they want to do it, but they need that extra, extra thing that takes them from that safe zone. And it's either a push out, you know, and I listening to your podcast and a lot of the guests that you have, quite often it's been something happened in my corporate life or whatever. And and I found myself needing to do something. And so, you know, I was pushed out of something else and I had to find something. And other people, it's a pull. There's this idea that's so great that you cannot let it lie or die. And in order to, to grow it, you've got to take that step because nobody else is going to do it as, as well as you. So kind of which side of the, the fence? I mean, it's not binary, obviously, but which side yeah. do you most on? Mostly on the pull side. I've been on the push side before and a previous job I had when my younger, younger, younger days um, was one of those ones that I probably should have left a lot earlier. And in the end, I just got fed up with them. They got fed up with me and I'm like, ah, you suck. And then you suck him. I'm out of here. And they're like, you're out of here. I'm like, oh, damn it. Um, so that kind of forced me into entrepreneurship there. But the majority of time it is that creative energy and it is seeing things. I love questioning things. I actually think it's a trait of ADHD. A lot of people treat ADHD as though it is you know, a disorder. I mean, it's kind of in the name, they call it a disorder, but in reality, I, I genuinely believe that it's just a different way of thinking. And I think it's that you operate in this creative energy a lot more than everyone else. And as a result, you can see things as opportunities. And I had this conversation with my son. We were sitting there, he goes, how do you come up with so many ideas? And I said, well, I just look at things a little bit different and I question things. So we used an example. We looked at these two ceramic birds that were in our living room. And I said, look, if, if someone came up to you and said, 
I want you to manufacture and sell those birds and make a profit. What would you say? And he goes, well, first of all, why would you do that? Somebody else is already doing it. And secondly, I know nothing about manufacturing. So it'll obviously cost me a lot more than it would them because they've got the massive production facilities, et cetera. And also, I don't even know if they are that actually in demand and blah, blah, blah. And I said, see, the first thing most people do is they see all the obstacles. But what I do is I treat those obstacles as really cool cues. I go, okay, well, first up, obviously somebody else is already manufacturing these. So how can we make them different? What can we do that makes this completely unique, that makes it nothing like what these people are doing? Maybe we do something that's not birds. Maybe we do llamas. I don't know. And then next thing you know, you go, okay, and the manufacturing cost of this, obviously are really, really high. Um, and we know nothing about manufacturing, but why does it have to be a physical product? Why can't it be a digital product? What, in fact, what other digital product would actually make people respond to this? Maybe we could do something different. Next thing you know, you've created like an NFT series of endangered species that people, you know, get, get buy and then you donate money to a charity, but then you make a profit off that as well. But it's just looking at all those obstacles as opportunities and seeing it. In fact, we we just had this in one of the projects I'm working on at the moment, one of the, the series that we do, one of the NFT series, we released a Genesis collection. And right when we released the Genesis collection, which is a higher price than normal of these digital assets, of course, everything crashed, the cryptocurrency crashed and all this kind of thing. So a lot of people are like, ooh, that's a bit much, you know, oh, I have to be quite considered with my transactions, you know, and with what I buy. So I sat down with the team and, and everyone was really despondent. They were all like, hey, you know, this is a this is a terrible thing. We're not selling many of these at all. And I went, well, let's think a bit different. And what are the main objections? And we found three main objections that people had. Two of them were tied to the value of it. So one of the, you know, two of them were basically people saying it's too much money, which means two things. One, we haven't clearly articulated the value of that. And two, we're in a market at the moment where people are being very considered. And I said, so how do we take that consideration out without reducing the money? So then we came up with a concept of not selling the Genesis collection, keeping it there, but actually coming up with a new collection, which will fund the Genesis collection. So, so in other words, it's just a different way of doing things where we can put them out there really, really cheap. It gets you some really good value, but you go on the chance to win one of these Genesis ones as well. And suddenly that's skyrocketed. So it's just looking at every obstacle as an opportunity. And when you do that, uh, especially when you do that while you're in corporate, that's a really interesting one because you see all these things out there and you go, oh, there's a chance I could do something. but And then it becomes the big pull. Uh, and I call it the hook because honestly, once it gets into you, you can't, you have to give into it. You can't deny it because it'll pull harder and harder and it'll start to hurt and you'll start to look at your job and go, I'm really unhappy here. I feel really unfulfilled. I want to be doing that thing over there, which is creative, which is birthing something into this world, you know, all those kind of things. So I think you've just described and proved to everybody listening exactly why you are an ideas factory and why you make a great mentor and a coach. But I was just <laughs> going to ask, what what would you say if somebody asked um, you to be their mentor in terms of making that step or yeah. kind of uh, or, or turning the dial up? I think you're turning the needle. That's one of the terminologies that, that you use. Yeah. What would you say are the one or two things that you would give advice on in relation to that? Oh my goodness. If they're looking to move the needle, if they're looking to actually you know, make that leap, two pieces of advice I always give to everyone is, first of all, you've got to surround yourself with people that can help you. And by that, I mean, you often when you do something that's risky, right? When you're looking to leave your corporate, for example, and start a startup, you go to friends and family and you say, I'm going to do this. Now, the problem with that is these are people who care about you. They're people who love you. So they want to keep you safe. So they look at this and they go, well, 
that sounds risky to me or that sounds scary to me. And also they don't have your vision. They can't see what you see when you want to create something. They only see their world and what they've experienced. So therefore often they accidentally hold you back and they go, well, that would be risky. I wouldn't advise you to do this. I wouldn't advise you to do that. Surround yourself with people that have gone where you want to go and go, Hey, I want to be like that. So, you know, get them in as a coach or a mentor, or even just to consume what they put out there so you can learn from them. But the other thing too is um, really is just taking that leap. It's just looking at, and I know, like we said, you know, with Nike, it's just do it or, you know, feel, face the fear, feel the fear and face it anyway, or do it anyway. It really does work. You just, at some point have to make a decision. And this is the th weird thing that we have as human beings. We kind of think that making a decision is final. And this is what holds a lot of people back. And we see this in marketing all the time where people go, oh, I can't, I, what if I choose that logo and I don't like that logo? Well, what if I'm going with orange and purple, which is my kind of brand colors. Orange and purple is my brand colors, but oh no, what if suddenly that's out of fashion? So what? Change it. Well, just because you've made a decision doesn't mean you can't change that decision at some point. If you make a decision to go into business and guess what? It doesn't work, then change. Go back into corporate if you need to, or it's not a sense of failure. It's a sense of I've tried something. I've learned from that experience nothing is final. Like, honestly, I, I still remember actually the job where you and I met when I made the decision to leave there. I remember sitting down, me and Leanne went to a kebab shop. We've banned ourselves from going to kebab shops because we honestly always make like major life decisions there. But I was sitting there and I said to her, look, this opportunity's come up, right? Which I've been talking about for her for, you know, the last so many years. And the more I looked into this opportunity, the more I realized it had huge potential. And that was to create common ledger with, with my co-founder. I said, but it's going to mean leaving, you know, a well-paying job and basically going into a company where we're going to get no income for like six months because we had a plan. We said, we're going to build it for six months. Then we're going to raise a million dollars worth of seed funding. And then we're going to build it from there, which is exactly what we did do. And my wife turned around and turned around and said, hmm, interesting timing. I said, why? And she goes, well, you know how I've always wanted to change career because she she was she trained as an early childcare teacher, but she really wanted to help people with addictions. And she goes, I've never felt right to shift career and to study something new, but now I feel right. Now's the right time for me to go and study, which means, by the way, leaving her well-paying job and having no income for probably more than six months. So we realized we were talking about both of us leaving and giving up our security blanket. And the thing that kind of reinforced it for me though was she turned around and said yeah but when have we never landed on our feet and it made me realize that in any of these kind of things whatever you're looking at doing whatever that risk is the reality is you can bounce back from this like look at most of the major entrepreneurs in the world have faced bankruptcy at some point they've gone bankrupt and they still build these giant empires and things you know like nothing is ever final any decision you make is a decision you can reverse that if you need to but the key thing is make a decision and actually take that risk because on the other side of that may be failure or maybe your perception of failure and it also may be success, but you're never going to know until you actually do it. Yeah, I mean, I think that really resonates with me. I think when I think of leadership, not in a hierarchical sense, yeah. but I think when you're an entrepreneur, you're the leader of your vision, right? You yeah. have to You have to hold it, you have to grow it, you have to sell it. You have to not be de not deviate from it, but also learn from others and adapt yeah. it. And when you're a leader in an organization, whether that's corporate or not, you quite often end up in the same situation. You know, there's a change that needs to happen. There's a strategy that needs to be delivered. Yeah. And other people around you, your people that work for you, your peers, they'll be doubting <laughs> the durability or is this the right way to go? And so you're kind of, you're marketing yeah. that 
your list, your marketing, your selling, your championing, all the kind of yep. all the way. Hundred percent. I used to say, I used to say to leaders, kind of doing coaching, you know, in organisations. Yeah. In the end, in a hierarchy, which an organisation tends yeah. to be, your job is to make a decision, have the courage to make that decision, because actually everybody around is looking for you to make that decision. And when you work for yourself, it's only you, right? You're the only one to make who can make that decision. There's a lot of similarities in that. So what you're describing for me is how you're kind of embodying a lot of leadership characteristics that people tend to think only apply in the professional hierarchical world, but actually they apply in your personal life. Absolutely. Yeah. They apply in, in kind of entrepreneurship. Definitely. And that, that's the thing too, like, as you said, they, we often, like going back to the kind of mistakes thing, you know, like if we make a decision, we often think that, there's two outcomes from any decision. There is success or there is failure. But in reality, that's not the case. There is success in learning. You know, this you either succeed and achieve what you wanted to achieve, or you learn a lot from that experience, or you make some mistakes, but you can always bounce back from mistakes. But true failure, the only true failure is the, the inability to make decisions. That's where you you give up on something before you've even tried it. That to me is the definition of failure. It's going, hey, I'm not even going to take the risk on this because you know, what if it doesn't work? Well, you just, you're looking at something that could potentially have, you know, broken through for your life, something that could have, you know, helped you and your family to grow or something that, you know, you could have brought to this world to really impact people. And you're denying that because of fear. That to me is the only failure. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think the other thing that in terms of that decision is decisions don't mean something happens immediately. And I know no. a lot of your podcast guests talk about actually things take time. I was listening to one of your podcasts this morning on my walk on the beach, which is my general podcast listening yeah. time. And one of the discussions was, you know, you can't just build something and expect people to come. <laughs> yep. uh, you can't just build your baseball field in, you know, in the cornfield and magically hundreds of people come in, you know, again, yeah. 80s, 90s movie telling us that that's what's going to happen. <laughs> but actually marketing, it, it doesn't work like that. Exactly. And it's the same when you're when you're building a product, building a brand, but also when you're trying to change something, you know, you can't change a habit. They say 21 days is the minimum to change a habit, like reducing sugar or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's the same. You make a decision to do something and you expect it to magically play out the next day. Actually, it's going to take time. You've got to give it some time. You've got to feed it. You've got to championing it. And, and only once you've given it really good a really good go, yeah. uh, you know, you've learned from all of that. Do you go, or oh, maybe it's a failure or maybe I need to adapt? That's exactly it. Yeah. I just, I love those analogies. Honestly, the amount of times, the amount of times I've been, you know, you, you don't make a decision or you get afraid of a decision because of that. It's just got to remind yourself what's on the other side of it. But marketing, I love it. A lot of my clients, because I teach a lot about marketing, you know, when I'm coaching people and the amount of times they come to me and they go, oh, I did this social media post and it failed. And I went, okay, well, tell me more. They said, well, I, I wrote up this really amazing you know, social media post based on what you taught me. And I, I put it out there and I got really low engagement. I said, yeah, surprise, surprise. Oh, do I need to pay for advertising? Well, said, what else did you do? What do you mean? What else did I do? I put the post out there. I said, yeah, but who did you, who'd you tag? You know, who'd you go out there and DM about that? Who'd you tell about that? Where'd you share that post? How'd you put the, did you email that out to other people to say that it's there? Where were the other channels that you were driving traffic to what you put out there? All of us have this tendency to create something and think, there we go. I can sit back now and that's going to work. Forgetting that it never works that way. You've actually got to put the effort in and same in corporate life, same in marketing, same in entrepreneurship, same in your personal life. 
if you really want to achieve something, you do have to, unfortunately, there's no shortcuts. You're going to have to put the work in. Well, that sounds like a good ending for us. And that has been over an hour talking anyway. And I know you and I can easily chew up all of the day. <laughs> I want to I mean, secret, secretly, this is just our chance to catch Absolutely. up because it's been way too long. So, yeah. Absolutely. It's been a couple yeah. of months. I wanted to add a couple more words to my descriptors of you. So I was uh -oh. going to curious because I think that's another C sound word, you know, and just talking about your career and, and understanding all the different things that you've tried and and, you know, you see a problem or you see an opportunity and you are instantly curious, not only about it, but also about the opportunities, yeah. um, but also generous, because I know you've given your time up and you've also shared a lot of personal things with us and a lot of your learning. So I just want to say thank you very much. Oh, Jules, anytime. It's such a pleasure being on here. It, like I said, just selfishly, just for us to catch up, but also because, you know, you and I, look, I remember when we met, it was like, okay, there are people that I've come across in my career that, you know, there's good bosses, there's bad bosses, there's average bosses, et cetera. But there are people that just carry this genuine air about them. And you're one of those people. Um, you genuinely care about others. You genuinely care about the success of both the organization you work for or consult to and the people that are in there as well. And that that doesn't go unnoticed. So yeah, it's an honor. Oh, thank you so much, Vince. We will do it again, I'm sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks, as always, to the generosity of our delightful guests. The stories of how others have faced up to their challenges can help give all of us courage to keep going with our own. For more great episodes, blogs, learning packages, go to the humansatwork.org website.